Press that. Oh, I'll say it again. It's great to be here. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't expected it would be <clears throat> such a big experience for me. I'll tell you why. Um, I have loved uh, what Prajnaparamita, the mother of all Buddhas, has come to mean to me over the uh, last 40 years since I met her. So I was real, oh yeah, sure, I'd love to. Let's reclaim the wisdom of the mother of all Buddhas. She'd always been important to me. But I hadn't expected that uh, at this stage of my life that there would be not just the pleasure of hanging out with her and you, uh, daughters of Prajnaparamita, but that I would would be given the gift of seeing what she has done in my life since I first met her. The article, the essay that was sent to you uh, was the mother of all Buddhas was written that 40, in, 40 years ago. And, um, and I thought that was, that's a lot already. Wow to find wisdom portrayed like that. But now coming with, to be with you uh, at this point with what's happening in our world and being at my age, I am invited to see what's manifesting for me is ways she has been much more present with me in my life and work than I had even imagined. In the... Uh, work that has drawn me out, that I've stumbled into in the adventures uh, of the uh, uh, last four decades. So it's, I feel as if it's uh, like uh, a shower of gifts. To just be conscious of the gifts you're given, isn't it? And we're all given so many gifts, but when you let yourself be conscious of the gifts, it's like receiving them all over again, over and over. I bet you've experienced that in writing some of your own adventures and about your life and the people you've loved and the situations and even the people you didn't love quite so much. And then just to see that uh, opening, how encounters and challenges with time open up and reveal uh, a... Uh, aspects of the generosity of the universe. So before zeroing in this afternoon on Prajnaparamita, I want to tell you what I have in mind for us this afternoon is reflections for the first hour or so, then a break, and then three practices. That okay with you? I need a little feedback from any group I'm talking to. You can nod vigorously or whistle or call or... <laughs> okay, good. So, as I said, before zeroing in on her, I would like to uh, back off a little bit to a wider context and reflect for a moment on the different ways that people on spiritual paths view our world, 
their world. Earth and culture and the other beings in it, what we see around us, our own bodies. And it seems that what struck me are four different images that people have uh, who are on spiritual paths of the phenomenal world. And uh, you find them in almost uh, every religious tradition. Then, uh, yep, I think you can. And they are world is battlefield, world is trap, world is lover, and world is self. So just want to reflect on those and invite you to see how each of them are there. They're right there in our world today, particularly the first two, very evident. And uh, what they, what they, they, the effect they have on us uh, and our feeling self the beauty and efficacy of our lives. So world is battlefield. Oh boy, that image goes way, way back uh, to the Zoroastrians and Manichaeans and probably before that, where the world is seen as a pitched battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil between the legions of light and those of dark. And uh, you want to be on the side of the light and the good, by the way. That's where he... <laughs> But you have to be very vigilant because it's uh, extremely uh, vigorous. And uh, you know, of course, that God is on your side. And that uh, uh, it's a very reassuring view. It's very strong in our world of 2014. It's been gotten very strong since uh, for the last um, 13 years, 12 and a half years since 9-11. World is battlefield. War on terror. Jihad against the infidels. War on uh, the, your interpretation of God's will and of what righteousness is. So uh, in, a, in a, a world situation where there's a lot of danger and doubt, this can be a very reassuring uh, way of looking at the world, as long as you're sure you're on the side of light and, and good. And uh, anybody can decide that. And so it sort of summons up the blood. Can you feel it? You know, oh. And uh, you, uh, no matter how bad things get, uh, you are going to fight the good fight. And uh, the, ultimately, the victory will be yours. It doesn't matter. And it certainly doesn't matter very much what the world, the world is sort of a backdrop to uh, the battles. Uh, what matters is who wins. 
And uh, boy, that can be good for making you pay attention. So we see a lot of that today. Almost so much economic policy put in terms of who's going to win, climate change policies put in terms of how we fight climate change. I bet a lot of you have squirmed at that one. War against drugs, war against poverty. I just wish there were a little bit of that last one. And so that is uh, one of the images that uh, uh, is, is so strong in our time. It's good to bow to that or notice that as we turn to other ways of seeing. And that second one I mentioned, there's war as battlefield, uh, temple, uh, oops, uh, world as battlefield, and world as trap. Now you find that in almost every uh, religion and spiritual tradition too, where uh, the world, you see how uh, broken it is, how messy it is, how much suffering there is, how much stupidity there is. And uh, who wants that? And so uh, the, it becomes to be seen as a kind of trap you want to, want to get out of, to go where uh, things are whole and shining and perfect and uh, tranquil. And uh, in that, that is a very veritable tradition too. And it often plays out uh, ontologically, as we say, where the, that which is uh, suffering, broken, defeated, is seen as less real. Indeed, the material world is seen as less real. And so you want to extricate yourself there from this trap, from these toils of matter. And the journey is therefore generally up to ascend to a place of supernal uh, serenity and light untroubled, eternal. You can find that in most of the major religions too, in my root tradition of Christianity as well as in the Buddhist tradition as well. And it is, you find it quite a bit in uh, New Age, uh, some manifestations of New Age thinking and spirituality. that our thinking makes it so. So don't talk too much about the harsh and bitter things, about war and radioactivity and uh, contamination and poverty. It's negative thinking because we're going to go up to where things are beautiful. Is that not so? So that... um, hasn't really had a lot of, speaking very frankly, it hasn't had a lot of appeal to me. Big surprise. And uh, 
because I love the world. And the fact that it's uh, broken and diseased or contaminated, are you going to leave your mother because she's sick? So that view of trap uh, doesn't hold. So I find myself drawn much more to the other views of the world that I mentioned. And they are ancient and venerable too. To see the world as lover. World as self. Now there's the devotional devotional yearning expressed and sung. Here it's mostly in the arts and in the music and in the hymns and in the and particularly where it's, I found it most exquisite in a way, uh, that yearning for the lover that you used to get to the total uh, truth, the sacred, uh, is through discovering uh, the, that deep erotic strain in all of us, uh, opening up that base chakra, the muladhara, where it feeds the yearning to become uh, ecstatically in relation with the uh, object of your most urgent, exquisite desire. And the bhajans of toward finding one oneness with Krishna in, the, uh, in India, uh, it's also oneness with our world, is it not? As there are these hymns of uh, calling to him and he has his beautiful gray-blue skin, the color of the monsoon clouds that bring moisture and fertility and the honey taste of his lips and his eyes like stars. So you are yearning for the beloved and it is the beloved is seen in terms of our world. You get that in a lot of the mystics the bridal mysticism of St. Teresa and Christianity. A lot of the religion, the uh, Sufi, Sufi ecstatic uh, hymns of uh, Rumi and others. So uh, I find uh, that uh, Well, I need to speak about, before I sum up, about world as, as self. You know, in, in the love relationship, there's this yearning not only to taste and to relish uh, the company and form of the other, but to merge with it. And so world as self and world as lover kind of often blend into each other. It's sort of more like what you had for breakfast, which you feel more drawn by. That we want to taste and receive the gift we've been given by being called into life. 
on this planet, in this world, with so much to attend to, so much to taste and celebrate, so many ways to let one's own heart be open, bigger than your chest, so many ways to find yourself freed from grip small, gripping hands of ego to open to the world and such yes saying. Yes, yes. Yes, I'm here. Yes. You bet. I'm here. Praise be. And the... uh, saints and sinners and heroes that uh, call me the most are those which love the uh, taste and beauty of our world and see its brokenness at the same time and struggle with it. See that in Dr. King, if you listen to some of his last speeches last week, just this last month. Oh, such a love for this world, even when he knew he wasn't going to be in it for very long. How that fed his stamina and his endurance. How he saw that inescapable network of mutuality. He's saying, Dr. King, that's just what Prajnaparamita, mother of all Buddhas, said. Because she retrieved uh, that original teaching of the Buddha that we all belong to each other. And if you have a hankering of uh, belonging to our world, a belonging that brings out your own joy in being alive and your own gifts and your own readiness for surprise and taste for adventure, uh, that path of lover self is a good one. So why am I talking about this? We want to talk about uh, Prajnaparamita. And, uh, but I want to, I, I, there are many things I love about what Carl Gustav Jung said, but perhaps this I love the most. He was talking about the nature of the spiritual journey. And he said uh, that it's changing for us now, and he put it in archetypal terms. Actually, he put it in astrological terms. He said, as we move from the age of Pisces, the two fish, to the age of Aquarius, our understanding of the spiritual path changes ripens and we what used to the spiritual path as seen as a journey toward perfection that's usually up (laughs) getting pure eternal light filled and very good. 
that has given way now to an understanding of another way of seeing the uh, spiritual journey. No longer to perfection, but to wholeness. A journey to wholeness. And you can see how even the gestures that invites are like this. It's not so much climbing Jacob's ladder, getting up away from the muck and the mortal. Saying right here, and holding, holding, belonging. So now we turn to, I felt how I felt that when I encountered uh, the perfection of wisdom. Now we call her perfection. You just said, well, perfection. But you know, uh, paramita, which we have translated as perfection, is more than that. It's sort of beyond concepts. And her teachings and her teachings about the nature of things and about the bodhisattvas that we all are, are all about our finding our wholeness. Can you feel the difference in your bodies as you imagine the two from going up the ladder to staying here and embracing? One is the movement of healing, what is broken. The other is getting away from it. So um, I would like to uh, read a couple of passages uh, from my uh, memoir, Widening Circles, that can tell you swifter than my uh, talking like this. Uh, some key things I'd like you to know about the mother of all Buddhas as I discovered her. And then I want to talk about uh, how, looking back over the last 40 years, mm -hmm. you'll get to be this age if you're lucky. Um, how I've discovered, and this is new for me, uh, not that surprising, but still very amazing to me. So uh, I had encountered the Buddha Dharma uh, while we were serving the Peace Corps, my family and I, uh, my husband, who was the <laughs> deputy director in India, and I had encountered the Dharma through a friendship with Tibetan refugees and a particular community of them that has lasted till now and beyond. They were my gateway into the uh, Buddhist world. Praise be. And in that experience, uh, I held back for a while asking for teachings because back they'd recently come out of Tibet and were in uh, hunger and illness and poverty and in unstable conditions in the Himalayan foothills in the north of India. And I, with another Peace Corps volunteer, was uh, working to get them loans and land. And I didn't want to trouble them by asking for teachings, but 
in my second year, I did. I received teachings from a wonderful Tibetan nun, English-born Tibetan nun. Thank you, Mommy. And uh, so then I conceived, although we had intervening years in the Peace Corps in North Africa and West Africa, I knew I wanted to learn the Buddha Dharma as a scholar and that I wanted to teach uh, Buddhist thought and practices at the college university level. So uh, that was uh, in my 40s. So those of you who are in your 40s and younger, 40 in your 40s is an excellent time to go back to school because you're very smart then. And you have learned how to do things very fast because if you've had a family or anything, you've gotten to be very swift. And, and then you turn to studies. And as I said in this, I found my mind was like an eager horse galloping. So, and it was then that I, uh, in my third year of doctoral studies, that I discovered her. May I read you a few pages? Be swifter than if I talk. Remember it. So I had been, I'd been studying in depth the uh, teachings of the Buddhist movement. And they'd broken up into the movement into eight different, se- 18 different sects. And I was just getting my head addled by reading the Abhidharma, which had been written three centuries after the Buddha. And these were extremely scholastic and detailed, enumerating and differentiating into categories all the little psychophysical events that can flow through your body-mind. And so you want to see exactly what they are so you don't think that you have a solid self. Your self is kind um, atomized into these small dharmas. And uh, I, and my head swam. This was called wisdom. This noticing all these different kinds and um, interrelations of these small little units of experience. I was confused and bored with all this attention to hypothetical dharmas and a little irritated too. It reminded me of the hair-splitting debates of the early church fathers because I'd been studying biblical history. And so... uh, But I didn't stay sullen as a scholar for long. The next semester, a teaching and presence broke into my life, as happened for Buddhist India, too, back in the first century of the Christian era. I was reading a scripture from the dawn of the Mahayana, a perfection of wisdom sutra. That was her name, too. Rajnaparamita. She was not a historical figure, but the symbolic embodiment of true insight. And as such, she was called 
the mother of all Buddhas. It was she who brought them forth and nursed them into enlightenment. As I became familiar with this text of hers, dauntingly entitled Perfection of Wisdom in 8,000 Lines, I imagined her blowing into the scholastic debates, scattering their arguments like dry leaves. I could almost hear her impatient maternal voice. Just stop it. (laughs) This analytic exercise is not what it's about. You don't break free of the self by dissecting it into its components. The separate dharmas with which you busy your minds are empty. (laughs) Empty. They're as empty of their own reality as the self is, as all concepts and conjectures are. And indeed, Shunya, empty, was one of her names. Her scripture offered little to let me picture her. No physical descriptions, just attributes like space. These were used like names for her. Akasha, space. Deep space. Endlessness. Fullness. And each of these attributes, which were like names, were with their opposite. So she was empty and she was full. Her lack of features allowed images of my own to surface. Images of strong gray arms and a rustling surround of sun-dappled green With Prashnaparamita, I was back again in the maple tree on Ui's farm where changing light played through the leaves, her leaves, and through me as well. And then I found in reading her scriptures that she was bringing tremendous news about the bodhisattvas her sons and daughters. Up until then, the term bodhisattva had been mainly applied just to earlier incarnations of Gautama, the Buddha. And now, because she took so seriously the main teaching of the Buddha, which is our interexistence, our dependent co-arising, well, if that's true, if you can be a bodhisattva, then I'll, I can too. If you can be, I can, you can be too, because we are all. Well, as I was quoted by uh, my friend here this morning, we're all the same stuff. We're all held in relationship in this wonderful tapestry of life. The hero model of the Mahayana is described here in this sutra fully for the first time. Not as an earlier incarnation of the Lord Buddha, but as a reality we each can be. Reading 
of their bodhisattva insight and compassion, I recognized the bodhisattvas that had graced my life. Like Owe and the Air Force chaplain at Blair and Frida Beatty and Chugyal Rinpoche and Father Went and Dr. King and even some Peace Corps volunteers I knew and some folks at the Urban League. We can all be bodhisattvas, the mother of all Buddhas was quite emphatic on this point. That's because we are, by our very nature, interdependent with all life and engendered by relationships. So we are perfectly capable of treating others as ourselves and of opening to the world as to our own hearts. We are perfectly capable of that. And we yearn for that. And this is the time. As Anna said last night, when we discover that capacity in us, big time. Because life depends on it. Well, I guess I can't even try to convey to you, but I'm doing my best, but I realize I can't find what that meant to me. A little bit. Am I yes, conveying a yes, little bit? I, I feel it. You feel it? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was going to write my dissertation on her and on particularly on a particular chapter in this sutra uh, called the uh, Meditation of Jubilation and Transformation, which I'm going to offer you after our break. And I was came out to... I was in the East Coast then. I learned Buddhist Sanskrit so I could work with the text. and uh, But that didn't pan out that way. And I think that the mother herself had a hand in what happened. Yes, I'm quite sure now. So she said, don't just stay around doing usual kind of uh, exegesis on that sutra. And she kicked me out into... Uh, systems theory, and I found myself in a seminar on general systems theory. And then uh, that helped me in a way that nothing else could have to unpack the Buddhist teaching of interexistence, of the dependent co-arising of all things. And that turned into a book I've written called Mutual Causality, and it's the, it's the foundation of everything I've taught and of the work I uh, do in the world. And then the, her teachings on the bodhisattvas gave me courage to face the pain that came with looking what we were doing, having split the atom. We were not only making nuclear weapons, we were not only using them, but we were, to make ever more plutonium, we were strewing the land with nuclear reactors, and I found myself in the uh, nuclear and the nuclear power movement. And that stretched stretched my heart and stretched my mind, just as uh, Prajnaparamita probably knew it would. And then I found myself, instead of going uh, 
right away to find a classroom somewhere to teach. I went to Sri Lanka where there's a movement, a Gandhian movement, uh, based on Buddhist teachings very openly. And it was wonderful to find that these uh, teachings that were fully uh, in sync with really radical, politically relevant dharma were in the Theravadan tradition. So don't fall for the old plat- platitude about Mahayana being caring for the world and uh, the great, what am I saying? You know, the usual. Yeah, but at the Theravada, and the, don't, don't ever use the word Hinayana, but of the elders, that, that they're less concerned for the world. Yeah, it goes right across. And you're going to be sharing, I'll be sharing with you some of the wonderful practices I learned from them. And then I had, uh, uh, with the, the, what I'd gone through and the pain, the, the, the hopelessness I saw in the causes that I and my brother-sister activists were uh, taking on, um, how heartbreaking it was and how people were shutting down in the general society. And I found looking for ways, so how can people be with a suffering world and not shut down? And uh, so I went through a kind of dark night of the soul and out of that and with some wonderful friends we created a form of interactive work that's grown ever since then the last 35 37 years and it first suffered suffered surfaced as uh, in an article that I wrote that was passed around like semi-stat like it was what we would call today went viral but we didn't have the internet then and this article reprinted here and here and here and there, was called How to Deal with Despair. And that drew a lot of people. And when I came back from Sri Lanka, there were invitations to come and do a workshop. Yeah, we, we, we feel bad about things too. We feel closed down. How can we do, what do we do with our despair? So the other thing I want to read you is what happened uh, when I uh, went to my first workshop. I was planning to uh, still go back to be a classroom teacher. So I found myself in California near Santa Cruz in a Quaker study center called Ben Loman. And there were several dozen people who had gathered there for a workshop that they had built, Despair and Empowerment. And um, they were all settled in. But now that I'd actually arrived to lead a weekend, I wanted to run. What did I have to give these people who are now gathering in the lodge for supper and that first evening session. 
They may have liked my article, but they would soon discover I had little more to offer. There were several dozen of them, from prosperous-looking professionals to young people in jeans and veteran activists greeting each other. They had cleared a whole weekend to come here, and now they settled themselves on chairs and sofas and cushions, waiting for things to begin. And I sat still for a moment to feel my breathing and let some inner silence happen. There she was, just as soon as I thought of her. Prajnaparamita, the mother of all Buddhas. She had inspired me with her bodhisattva teachings ever since I'd studied her scriptures. Now, and this was the first time I'd really felt this that strongly, now she revealed herself as a presence I could lean into, just as she would henceforth, time and time again, whenever I faced a room full of strangers and felt at a loss. Big and invisible, she held me in her lap, shielding my back. She breathed through me. She was the deep space of our interconnectedness. The hunger of children, the chainsaws in the forest, the reactor's radioactive emissions, the exquisitely precise construction of warheads to incinerate whole cities. These realities were, like her, beyond the reach of our senses. In most of our lives, as in this lovely lodge, we couldn't see or hear or touch them. Prajnaparamita, our interconnectedness with all beings, was at least as real as the bombs and empty bellies. So I felt her breathing, which coincided with mine. And I settled in to the power of her presence. Along with her authority, I now opened to her love for these people, whom she saw as her bodhisattva sons and daughters. And that eclipsed my fear of them. Countless times since that uh, summer evening of 1980, that was six years after I had studied her, and she, I have uh, summoned her with an act of my mind, heart-mind, And she is there just as real as our interconnectedness with all life. 
You cannot see our interconnectedness with all life with our physical eyes. You can't see her with your physical eyes. But that, at that moment, 2,000 years ago, and ever since, for those who've known her, and ever before, since she's the mother of all Buddhas, she didn't, not yesterday's child. <laughs> she's as real. And when I pray to her, my prayers can get very swift, like a second. She always shows up. And with the breathing in my chest, the fear movement in my body, I can feel her breathing too. And perhaps sense yours as well. That workshop that I, where I discovered that I could sit in her lap in 1980, uh, morphed and grew. And the colleagues came. First, there were a lot of Quakers and artists and people doing reevaluation counseling. <laughs> and people of all ages. And uh, it has been a great gift in my life. And uh, there have been uh, three books just about the work. There's Coming Back to Life, Active Hope, and now the one I'm uh, writing with my co-author, Molly Brown, uh, right now for an April deadline. We're having a little struggle about the title with the publisher. Do you want to know the one we're fighting for? On behalf of planet Earth, an updated guide to the work that reconnects. Now I want you to see that that has, that title is, I've been fighting for it with the publishers. This is too late, too late. Uh, It has gravitas, don't you think? On behalf of planet Earth. And it lifts us not just about our own goodness and valor. It's about our calling. We are so fortunate, my angels. Of course we are so. We are each one of you. Maybe you planned this. Maybe you fought against it. But we are born into a time where we can make everything we've ever learned about courage and connectedness can be put to use. Because what's at stake is the future of complex life forms on this planet. And you're here. So don't you dare get bored (laughs) or feel trivial. You're called for something very wonderful. And if you doubt it, you talk to have another little talk with Prajnaparamita. So what is, is uh, as I look at um, my life, as I mentioned before, 
what's, uh, I can't believe how lucky I am that uh, this team invited me to come uh, and, and be with you with the mother of all Buddhas. Because at this point in my life, you know, you get to thinking pretty big thoughts when you're about to be 85. <laughs> you do. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but you, and, and, and but it, that doesn't mean you take yourself seriously. Um, so that I, what I'm thinking is, I'm seeing is how the mother of all Buddhas has shaped, been right there with me uh, in uh, the uh, how to face and honor our pain for the world. You better believe it. That is, and she's been right there with me in the first stage of the work that we do, which is all over the world now, the work that reconnects. First stage of it is gratitude, just to be glad, be glad you're alive. Put on the, changes the focal length of your glasses to see that this is an astonishing world. And there's so many things that have, could have kept you from this. Somebody could have missed the bus. Somebody could have missed meeting somebody else. And you wouldn't be here. And you are here at this moment of high drama and high stakes. And it's a beautiful world. And you had their beautiful teachings. And the Dharma is beautiful. And there are many forms of the Dharma. You know, when I talked about world as lover back then, I meant to talk about uh, the often world as mother. All our indigenous brothers and sisters, so many of them. The rights of Mother Earth. Honoring Mother Earth. That, that's being spoken now right at the UN and the Indigenous Peoples Forum. What a time to be alive. So we're going to be practicing gladness and gratitude. Do a little bit of that after our break. That's the beginning of the work. It's very good because it, it really pulls the rug out from under late-stage capitalism. <laughs> because corporate capitalism is built on the necessity of making us dissatisfied. You know that. To keep the engines of consumption and production going. It is a cruel thing. So gratitude is a revolutionary act. And then to honor our pain... Thank you. She taught, we're going to do that tomorrow. And some uh, Gaia theory. So you can't love the goddess and the mother of all Buddhas at this time without seeing. Uh, uh, you don't need to study Gaia theory to realize, but I'll give you a little anyway. Um, that... Uh, She appears to us as 
as the world that has brought us forth. And what we call deep ecology work. I want to do some of that too here in our uh, afternoons together. It was there, she was there when we created the Council of All Beings, where you step aside from your human identity and speak on behalf of uh, another life form. Come to love the world, and you don't know how, how good and clever you can get in your love for the world when you can speak on, start speaking for different parts of it. Mm. And then on our last day, I uh, some uh, deep time work. Because as mother of all Buddhas, she shows us into the beginning of things, just as the flesh of your body goes back, back, back to the first spinning of the stars and galaxies. Yep, every atom in every molecule of your body, cell and molecule of your body. And so we, uh, she has guided, the deep time work has been so fine. You want to do some of that? We will. We will. Yeah. So I've been running on quite a bit. And uh, let's take, I can't see that from here. Yeah. Let's let's see, uh, let's take 10 minutes to just see if there's something that's confusing you about uh, what I've said that you might like to clarify. Or chip in with your own, yeah. Oh, we have to get a mic. I can speak loud. No. Good. Holler. Um, the part that confuses me was your saying uh, she is not a historical figure. She is a symbolic representation, if I understood that correctly. And then the, I'm trying to figure out, you know, the praying to and the giving, getting support from. Is that a concept? Or is that because she is the interconnectedness of everyone, that is what you're getting your support from? So the woven, uh, it's life, like our life is a tapestry of many strands and currents. In Mahayana Buddhism, there's the image of the jewel net of Indra which is where reality is made of like a giant web. And we are all, all us bodhisattvas, jewel at every node. These are images of our interwovenness. And this interwovenness of uh, reality uh, is both physical and mental. It sings. It, it has, it, there's strands there of great, uh, that have been woven uh, with uh, tremendous gifts of art and thought. 
and their and not only that but their interconnectedness itself generates uh, uh, mind there's a mental uh, component to the web of life so she's not a separate physical being and is and but she appeared oh i'm going to she soon take took form but on, under other names and more limited realities so like with tara and with kuan yin and these uh, and uh, these female uh, they're all linked with wisdom and they're all uh, have her character of uh, unbounded caring for the living world that the world is alive it's okay for us to be here it's not a trap it's uh, an arena for us to discover the immensity of our uh, mind and awareness and love and, and skillful means. So I talk, we can talk about her as a person, uh, but just like uh, people all over the world have talked about God using personal pronouns. Does that answer your question? Is that relevant? I'm wondering who um, wrote the scriptures about Prajmaparamita and what was going on like historically and culturally that drew this concept out so powerfully. Mm. Well, I don't think anybody knows. Um, People back then weren't terribly concerned about putting their own John Hancock on, you know, um, or copywriting. They were more open source. <laughs> uh, but these discussions had been going on. It, it's, it's fascinating to me to see and read back in the uh, old uh, the documents and, and uh, uh, scriptures that uh, how uh, serious and focused they were on these que- questions of what is this reality that we're in and how does this reality that we're in this world uh, relate to uh, what I experience as my own personal body, mind, and speech and how can we uh, live together in a way that is harmonious with this Those are fascinating readings. Uh, I want you to remember that you asked that question because when you follow it up um, and uh, you'll find that they were having wonderful conversations about this. Like, uh, well, if there is no deity or final authority then how do we make decisions how do we know what's good 
Oh, you're going to love that. Those are, <laughs> those are great. Yeah, for those, because it has quite a bit to do. Um, you know, what, what Jung talked about the spiritual journey, discovering this one of wholeness. That's where we are right now, don't you think? And uh, so we're looking for ways that we can live together and make decisions together and act together that are uh, where we, c- we can find the social teachings of those scriptures back then of enormous interest. And that people have done the best work on it, interestingly enough, are Marxist Buddhists. Yeah. Joanna, is um, Gaia a different uh, representation of Prajnaparamita, or is it our connection with Gaia? I was thinking of Gaia who interacts with us, you know, the world, the planet that interacts with all life. Well, these are all ways of seeing and ways of thinking. And so we want to be careful not to literalize them or reify them because then that gets you into then it almost instantly some of the life goes out of it. So you uh, it's a way of seeing things. So that uh, for me, uh, it's hard not to have my feelings about this earth, which is uh, we've seen as a living system, just in our, my lifetime. It's amazing not to have the same feelings toward it as I have toward the mother of all Buddha. I, you know, that'd be, yeah, and the same kind of gratitude. And the same kind of willingness to go through anything for her. Yeah, the poets know that. And the singers will have a a singing way of honoring her tonight. (laughs) So I think that uh, we'll have a break now. And let's make it a 10-minute break so that we can do all three practices uh, before, lunch, before supper. Be back here then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.